One of the things that I truly love is to help people see the things in themselves that are qualities and powerful. And when someone's saying, I really want this, but I keep getting no, I say, there's a magic number of no's out there. Once you hit this number, it'll be that aha, you get the yes. You don't know what that number is. So you get this rejection letter. Yes, another one. Yeah. Each time you get it. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? I'm so excited to be sitting in the room with today's fierce guest, Betsy Pierce, hailed as one of the most powerful people in fashion, Betsy has been the legal dealmaker for top fashion icons like Carolina Herrera, Alexander McQueen, for the creative directors of Bottega Veneta, Nina Ricci, and Dior Um. She has conducted successful contract negotiations for the CEOs of Vera Wang, Jimmy Choo, Bergdorf Goodman, and many more. One of her first transactions was representing Alexander McQueen in the Gucci Group's acquisition of his company, so it's no wonder she's been called fashion's top legal eagle. Featured in articles in Vogue, International Herald Tribune, W Magazine, Bazaar, Gotham, and many more. Betsy maintains an international practice, splitting her time between New York and Paris, and currently she lives in Tribeca with her husband, Michael. Betsy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I got to know you personally um, over the last month, and I've been so impressed with your the way that you carry yourself, how powerful you are in the room, but also your caring nature. So I know you come from Minnesota, um, mm -hmm. the Midwest, just like me. So I'd love for us to backtrack to that Betsy before she became fashion's top legal eagle and tell me about your roots. Um, I am Minnesota through and through. When I get off the plane, I look around and I say, those are my people. And if anything, I am more proud than anything to be a Minnesotan. And I aspire in my whole life to maintain the values that I grew up with. What are those values? Um, to some degree, it's kind of a Scandinavian libertarian, because even though we're in the middle of the country, there's a sense of um, strong ties to the community. When you know, the bridge fell down, we had all these people running down the main street with a canoe on their back trying to jump in and get people out of the water. Mm. Or when there's a, a shortage of vaccines, you can't give them away. The old people say, oh, no, 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 they're for the children. It's, it's just how I grew up. So community then seems to be a very large part of how you've grown up. How do you see that, especially when it comes to the way you deal with conflict, because that's obviously a big right. part of the legal experience. And that's probably the best question you could possibly ask, because to me, once you've gotten to conflict, you've lost the battle. What I do and what I really love about my work is there are lawyers who are in litigation who are there to battle through a problem. And I find in, in many cases, someone will go to a lawyer and say, I want to sue them. I've, you know, no matter what, I want to. And what I realize is so often, it's not that they want money. They want the other side to say they're wrong, to admit they're wrong and say they're sorry. And that creates a universe of, in somebody's head, I tell them it'll be the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning and the last thing you think of when you go to bed, and it'll cost you a lot of money. Anything I can do to talk someone out of doing that, 
recognizing you know, that that situation is taking up a lot of control of space in your head. It's not paying rent, and it's in your power to say, I can't make them do anything. Move on. Where do you think that desire to prove other people wrong comes from? People feel wronged, wounded, and these aren't company-to-company battles, where it may well be about money. It's about partnerships or when people have gone into some kind of a trusting business relationship and it falls apart. And it might be allegations, accusations, things that touch people to the core rather than money. And they want to be revalidated by someone whose opinion they trusted and who told them they're not enough. You're wrong. You did something terrible. Mm-hmm. I, I often think about that as how many people are reacting to themselves or reacting to mm-hmm. the past rather than whatever person or obstacle is in front of them. Mm-hmm. How oh, do you make your, I guess, your clients see that? Are there specific tactics or ways that you conduct the conversation? Um, I, To me, those are the kind of things where I ask, what's really behind this? Where did it go wrong? What did this person in that contract mean? And are you cognizant of the fact of, I'll tell you this is what's going to happen. Can you be on your own side? Be on your own side and say, I win by letting this go. Mm. They're not going to say they're sorry, that we can't make other people do those things, and we can't let something that's out of our control take up our time and energy and all the good things that could be in your life Mm. going forward, rather than dwelling on something that has left you wounded and miserable Sometimes losing your stake in a company, whatever it is, it's moving on. Are there particular wounds in your past um, that you think really shaped you, and how did you get over them? You know, it's interesting. I guess sort of the big one is when I was three, I was bitten by a dog, Um, kind of significantly. Um, Huge scar here, lost part of my ear there, and what I didn't realize until I really delved into it because it was so hard for my family. I had six surgeries between the ages of three and five. Hmm. Major surgeries? Major, yeah. Reconstructing all sorts of things. And I remember growing up, the way I thought about it is, and again, this was shaped by my family and where I come from, part of me said, I felt like the scars were macho. Somehow I had this sense of, this was me in my sort of battle sense. And in my family, being beautiful was never important. Uh, and so I grew up thinking that, well, this isn't one of those things that's going to define me. Uh, and of course, when you hit the teen years, everything is a huge deal. Oh, I don't look like this. Oh, I don't. Whatever. And I think it's impossible to get over the things that were told when we're young. You know, kids would look at me and say, what happened to your face? Because it looked like big, jagged, red magic markers. But I guess it defined me in the way of recognizing what really matters. Hmm. And I sort of stopped seeing it, and I didn't think of that as anything... I worked really hard in school and did well, and I was an athlete, you know, working, playing on teams, and that really, it was sort of the fact that that didn't define me, but it never goes away. I think of mm-hmm. how my family and people around me treated me, which had nothing to do with that. Mm. And coming as an athlete myself mm-hmm. um, that has had the scars of what it's mm-hmm. like to be an athlete, as well as the wins yep. that come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit more about your athletic career um, and how that shaped you. Uh, when I was young, uh, it was in Minnesota, they treat boys and girls exactly the same. 
I was on hockey skates by the time I was nine, or and I started playing hockey uh, when I was 11. My next door neighbor uh, was my dentist and also the dentist for the Minnesota North Stars. Mm. He didn't have sons and I had a daughter my age and he started girls hockey in Minnesota. And I was 11, I was probably you know one of the younger and definitely smaller, but that was, that became my team. And to me, hockey, if I, I don't have kids, but if there's anything I can say is girls should play sports. Mm. Have your girls play sports. We need to know that we can be knocked down and get back up, that we're not gonna break. And what it's like being on a team, and especially for girls to support each other and be part of that effort. And that, when I got into high school, uh, I joined the high school teams and I played after school sports uh, three seasons a year. Mm. It was cross country running, uh, downhill ski racing, and soccer. Mm. That was for four years, and that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And then when I got to college, I played a couple more years of ice hockey. Sports are huge. It is, it is challenge. It is falling down and getting up. It's showing up every single day um, for your team. Mm. And especially women's sports, it's a really great thing. Mm. Yeah, the, the concept of failure is something that I think a lot about. And I, mm-hmm. you know, with the story of Sarah Blakely, you know, the founder mm-hmm. of Spanx. And, yes. um, you know, when she, before she started Spanx, she was a fax machine saleswoman. Mm-hmm. And getting those rejections over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And people often ask, like, how did you get through all that rejection? And mm-hmm. even with Spanx, mm-hmm. everyone thinking it was a stupid idea and right. only one person gave her a shot. And she said, well, it went back to one question that my dad always asked us mm-hmm. at the dinner table, which was, what did you fail at this week? That's magnificent. And That's magnificent. Exactly. And what he did with that question was he made failure acceptable. Mm-hmm. And so it almost was like failure rather than it being defined as something that you, you know, did bad at. Right, right. It was, and you're ashamed of. Yeah. It was a missed opportunity mm-hmm. if you didn't try it, try it out. It's that I find one of the things that I truly love is to help people see the things in themselves that are qualities and powerful. And when someone's saying, I really want this, but I keep getting no, I say, there's a magic number of no's out there. Once you hit this number, it'll be that aha, you get the yes. You don't know what that number is. So you get this rejection letter. Yes, another one. Yeah. Each time you get it, I'm closer, I'm closer. And we have to see it that way. Yeah. We have to. Yeah, and it's like Thomas Edison, you know, took him 65 tries. What if he quit yes. on the 64th exactly. to make the light bulb? <laughs> right, the success is right around the corner and you can't see it. Yeah. And it's perseverance and everybody has the failures and that, that's what makes us who we are. And you work with a lot of creatives yes. in the fashion industry. What has it been like with with them? Because I think, you know, even as a creative myself, mm-hmm. there isn't really that defined moment of success. Right. It's it's like you define it yourself. It's this gray zone that you're constantly living in. So what have you seen with some of the more prominent creatives that you've worked with? Um, sometimes and it's really a trap, is that some will think too much of themselves and not enough of themselves at the same time. And that's hard for me to work with because my job is to make a marriage. I, I'm not the one who does breakups and lawsuits. My clients are there with an opportunity. They have a job offer to work with a big company. It'll be public. It'll be a big thing in their life. Or they've got an investor that wants to take a large uh, stake in their company. So 
in that case, it's learn the things about yourself that really matter. Separate your priorities from what you think are priorities. Uh, it's Is it really about making money? Almost never. Someone will come in and say, here, I've got this, whatever. I'll say, put your contract aside. Let's talk about you. What have you really loved in the past five years that have nothing to do with your work? What do you want your life to be like in five years? And it's, it's sorting out, and how do the things in this agreement fit toward what you want to be? Rather than, it's getting the most money, they didn't give me this much. That's the difficult thing, is helping, helping people realize what's really satisfying, as opposed to what we're supposed to think is satisfying. Mm-hmm. And that is at the core of even this theme of enoughness, which is mm-hmm. that success and enoughness don't come hand in hand. Yes. Especially because success has been, or the definition of it, traditionally has been defined by this very aggressive, external, reward-focused mentality. Right. It's comparative against other people. Yes. So it's like looking sideways rather than looking ahead. Yes, yes. Or even inwards. Right. Um, What are some of, outside of money, other priorities that you found people mistake as the thing they should be focusing on? It's publicity. If anybody hears about me, that's more important than what I actually do or why people pay attention to me as opposed to the fact of what I do that's admirable. What Mm -hmm. I find is um, to have self-esteem is to do estimable things. That's where it comes from. And it comes down to that at the absolute bottom, bottom. What's more important than community? I've read all the the numerous happiness studies, (laughs) but the things that make sense are the people that are happiest are involved in a community they're needed. Being needed, I think, is enormous. Mm. My, my favorite book title, also a book, is Bowling Alone. Mm. Who would go bowling alone? And the theory was talking about the loss of community in American life, whether it's the community center, whether it's a church or a baseball team. That, to me, people can read, this is what we do to be happy, but how many of us really make it a discipline to go and do those things? Mm. Because we're too busy working 12 hours a day, comparing ourselves to the other people at work, knowing how much somebody makes, or do I have the title of X? And that's, I guess, what I've learned is that part of happiness is a sense of achievement. I set a goal, and I work hard, and I achieve it. And the difficult thing is some people's goals are not really about being happy. They're comparative. But they're also, it's the ever-moving goalpost. If I get here, that's not enough. I have to go further. And who is it that we're really doing all that for? Yeah. You have to be judged by people who don't know us. And that goes back to the very first point, which was about proving others wrong or proving something to the world. It's all defense. Yeah. And I think of this metaphor of, um, you know, you don't don't climb the mountain to be seen by others. Mm -hmm. You climb so that you can see others and provide that wisdom that you had as you Mm -hmm. were climbing the mountain that journey that's lovely that's really lovely (laughs) but also looking into yourself saying this is a goal and i have the confidence and i can get there but also i found that getting there independently isn't the same satisfaction of getting there together whether it's helping somebody else or having the courage to ask for help Mm -hmm. and to recognize we all get there in a process and that also is very far from the ideals of how we're supposed to make things as the as the independent, you know, the independent American. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely, to that point, this fear of 
asking for help, mm-hmm. seeming vulnerable, seeming like mm-hmm. you don't have it all together, mm-hmm. especially as social media becomes more and more prevalent. Right. Um, have you ever had that yourself where you feel like it's hard to show that when you need help? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's not wanting to say, I don't know this, or this is something I don't have and I'm supposed to pretend to the world that I do. I think all of us do. I'm trying to think when I felt I should have it and I don't. Oddly, I mean, this is a really strange one. I was, again, this is sort of the independence is part of the, part of the achievement. I was hiking in Telluride, and I love to hike by myself because I find it kind of meditating. And I you know, packed maybe five cans of Diet Root Beer and set off, and it was a bad map and I didn't pay attention, and I got really lost. Having a bad sense of direction is one of those <laughs> things. That's a big one for me. And I'd been hiking 10 hours. Along the way, it occurred to me that this is supposed to be easy and short, and I keep looking for whatever it is, whatever it is. And it was, it literally had been 10 hours. It was 50 degrees and raining. I was about two hours away from freezing to death. My judgment, I'm thinking, do I curl up under a tree? What do I do? But I remember being too embarrassed to yell for help. Hmm which is obviously completely (laughs) irrational, but it just didn't occur to me that that was something... I mean, that's irrational. That's serious hypothermia. Yeah. And I I hadn't seen a single person all day, and I was profoundly fortunate to somehow see, like, a fire in the distance and say... And it was two guys camping. And, of course, you know, I got all warmed up and whatever, and I didn't ask them, hike me out, because I'm here... And it's suddenly it's dark and it's still raining. There are people like expecting me to have gotten home mm-hmm. seven hours before, and I didn't feel like I could say, "Hike me out." And I don't know why not. And the next morning there was a search plane. Basically, I got warm, and then they here pointed me on the on the track, and I you know ran the three miles that I should have been closer to where I was. Mm. But in all those things, I wanted to hike by myself. I was afraid to say, "Help! Where is somebody?" even in a dire situation like that. And also, when I got somewhere, I don't want to disrupt what you're doing and get out of this for the people who were absolutely at their wits end all night. Mm. That's strange. Yeah. Even at that stage of not asking for help, that's strange. Where do you think that fear is rooted in, and do you still have that today? Not when I'm hiking and I'm freezing, <laughs> and but, um, much less so. Yeah. Uh, I find that, I mean, my husband and I are absolutely best friends. And for each of us, it's sort of that we know how to say, I'm losing it, help me. Or just having that intuition in other people. I am so much more open to asking for help because a big part of my life is finding out how to help other people. It makes me feel needed, makes me feel it really is a source of satisfaction. But if we don't learn to ask... And I can say that to other people, but it doesn't mean I've, all, I've got it all together and can do that myself. I've yeah. had my own business for 18 years. Yeah. Everything I've done, I have learned by doing it myself. Mm. And there are times when I so wished I had said, I don't know this aspect, and it's a huge, you know, it's a really large transaction, and I'm up against a large law firm, huh? And I've been really fortunate because I you know, have read all night, bounced things off of people I know, and realized, yes, I can do it. But it would have been a lot easier path had I just said, ah, bring in these people who know. Mm. And I'm, I'm fortunate. You know, worked hard and things turned out really well. Yeah. But I so wish that I'd gone the easier path 
rather than thinking independence is a value in and of itself. Yeah. Tell me about some of your mentors along the way and the people who did help you out when you right. felt like you could ask. And that, I think, is the, I've never had a mentor yeah. in my whole life. And I look back and think, there's so many turns that I would have taken that are different, or so many perceptions that I had at the time that were incorrect. In beating myself up and saying, um, let's see, I'm trying to think. Uh, growing up, it was always this, you know, I always sort of shot for the very highest thing, uh, whether or not it was the right thing for me. In college, getting out of college, the jobs to get were in, in investment banking and management consulting. I cannot add or subtract. That's one of those <laughs> things I kind of knew but learned about myself, but I interview really, really well. Yeah. And so I ended up in management consulting at the most quantitatively oriented that firm. That is impressive. Well, you know, it's like being able to do I that. interview really well. And I, in hindsight, you know, I really struggled and developed uh, skills and expertise that I didn't have. But to have fought that hard and thought, am I any good in the whole world right out of school? was really difficult. And I wished I'd had someone that says, you're really good at X. Somebody makes it doing that. I was going to get a joint degree in law and journalism. And so you had someone said, somebody makes it doing that. Why not you? I'm very pleased that I went on the path that I did. But in the same way, uh, getting out of law school for the highest, most prestigious thing to get, it was a judicial clerkship which mm -hmm. I realize it's kind of like having a stack of research papers on the desk. Yeah. You get them, it's research and writing, and you move on. Every job I had, next after that, the really hardcore, hard to get uh, into law firm. And I ended up there, too, and I wanted litigation, the most hardcore. <laughs> Once again, a job that is research and writing that does not play to my skill set. All that time through my life. It's like, why is this so hard? I wish I'd had someone who said, actually, these are these things are what you're good at. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I went into entertainment law, which is all contracts and human relationships. And it's like the aha, now I feel like where I'm supposed to be. But I sure wish someone told me that <laughs> beforehand. I learned a lot going through all those things. Yeah. But And maybe that's the point, is we learn by making steps and realizing this wasn't the right one. How do I get, as I go further, how do I at least move laterally to something different. Mm. And then what was that transition like going into building your own firm? You know, it's something that is, I'm not a, a natural entrepreneur. I don't see the 80-20 rule and how to project the, to me, it grew naturally out of having built up relationships. The small, my second entertainment firm, Small, had just gotten Prada as a client. And what I had done a lot of work in was negotiating uh, talent agreements in advertising. I said, great, I'll take that. And for three years, I worked directly with the office in Milan, negotiating for them to engage their top model, top uh, photographer, that at that time was going for you know, 500000 per season for exclusivity. And my way of negotiating, their representatives were... Uh, especially the photographers, they were photographers' agents, but those people were artists who happened to make their money in photography. And I, you know, what I could give and not give on behalf of Prada, I would say, okay, but what do you really need? Do we need to find a break in the schedule so she can do another job? Do, you know, What do you need to make this work? And my goal in a transaction going forward, how do we make a marriage? 
how do I find something that I can give you that really is fine with my client? And what is it that my client really needs, needs genuinely that you can give in return? And when I stopped working for Prada, all these agencies came and became my clients and sent me their clients. And it's one day I picked up the phone and it's Alexander McQueen Mm -hmm. saying, Gucci wants to buy my company. What do I do? So that was sort of, I think it was, it's making our own luck finding the way that I do things is making allies, especially if it's on the other side. Hi, lawyer, you're my, you're my creative uh, contact. We work together creatively to how to make something work. And it's, it's, I guess it's awfully nice and it's sort of reassuring as a Minnesotan <laughs> to do things the way that are natural to do them for me. Yeah. And that's, that's what works. Hmm. What is it like going into those rooms, um, especially against some of those larger corporate big right. wigs um, who may not have that sort of mentality that you have? Right. Um, tell me about that experience. Um, well, it's kind of, I look back and some of the really wonderful things were um, going to Cravath, this really serious hardcore litigation firm, as good as it gets, and negotiating for Thomas Meyer who's the creative director of Bottega, but also has had his own company, Thomas Meyer Poolware. And finally, he decided he would sell a large stake of it to uh, Kering, the successor of the Gucci group that owns Bottega. And we had a lot of bargaining power, uh, for one thing, which was great. But also, I mean, my, my sort of MO, I wear cutoffs almost every day between May and September, you know, because I can. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. It's my own practice. And if somebody doesn't like it, well, they're in the wrong place. But it was so wonderful to walk into Wachtell, one of the you know, top two or three, along with Cravath, and not be remotely intimidated by it. And knowing that they so much wish they had my job where they could walk in with cutoffs. <laughs> and it doesn't mean you get to be a jerk. Yeah. But knowing everyone looks up each other's bios, and it gave me a sense of confidence of having been accepted and made it through the the judgment and status measures that they would have, but also knowing that I'm good at what I do and engaging them together to say, how do we make this work? And I still love being able to wander in being exactly me in the middle of the summer when it's 100 degrees and they're all wearing bad suits, well, good suits. <laughs> but that's, that's one of the things that I have to say I really enjoy that came out of kind of paying my dues. Hmm. But yes, I, there were other times in the McQueen transaction, this was my first large any deal and I'm there for three days and we're sitting at this enormous long boardroom table at the Gucci group with the head of it Domenico de Sole his chief acquisitions officer who had come from investment bank and a whole room half their lawyers and I'm sitting there with Lee who albeit a genius really was profoundly uncomfortable and his long-term accountant from the middle of way nowhere who was sort of looking at all this saying uh and it's my job to sit there and run the show, and there's nothing you can do but run the show. Yeah. I have no idea where that came from. Absolutely none. But all those people in the room ended up being my allies in one, you know, one universe or another. Hmm. It's the lawyer, she and I spent so much time, countless Diet Cokes, working through the agreement that worked. So sometimes I think when we think people are not our allies, make them into your allies. Hmm. And it's so, by the time you've hit conflict, you've lost. Hmm. Are there mistakes that you've seen in negotiations that people make? And we can let's even bring it back to like startup founders, right? Mm-hmm. And founders negotiating with investors or founders mm-hmm. negotiating with co-founders. Mm-hmm. Um, what are those mistakes that you see? Um, one, it's not knowing what you don't know. 
and not having the courage to find somebody who does. But more than that, I guess there's something that I found, you know, just segueing a bit to what is sort of near and dear to me, is what women founder owners run up against. Um, first off, they have a lot, they have a much higher climb, a much deeper climb to get their companies to, uh, to financing, to find the right uh, relationships to build their companies. Um, it's a steep climb because automatically, just uh, structurally in the industry, the, the deck is stacked against them. The, the financing universe, it's lawyers and bankers and advisors who are, they have a male-oriented viewpoint. And they will look at women's businesses and say, you know what, it, it's not valuable. I don't think it's valuable. This individual is not valuable. Women don't have leadership skills. But the, the really difficult part, I mean, that is what it is. And it's hard to get past that. But even when a representative, you know, say a lawyer from this is, okay, we're going to make this deal, uh, that person doesn't acknowledge or even recognize that women have a different point of view. And whether it's women or someone, a creative who's built their own business, and all these complex issues in the course of a transaction come at them, uh, and they don't know the questions to ask, they don't even know where to begin, but they're afraid to ask them. And this really is common across a lot of people in creative-driven industries who are not born entrepreneurs. They don't want to make it appear that they don't know what they're doing. Nobody knows those answers. <laughs> Who in the world knows what the answers are to those very complex questions? And the establishment lawyer will assume and make the whole deal, and on the other side, no one knew what to expect. It's being hypnotized by uh, the pile of money on the table. A mm. banker-driven negotiation on both sides will get everyone, aha, this is the symbol of making it. Money seems to be the symbol of making it. And that's, I think... A grave mistake that a lot of founder owners developing their companies fall into that trap of this means I've succeeded. Whereas truly for creatives and often particularly women, what really makes them feel satisfied like they've achieved what they want is does my team still report to me? Does my customer still get the same value in what I've sold them before? And that's what people miss out on that that's really what's valuable and makes them happy. Hmm. I think a lot of times it comes down to purpose, right? Yes. Feeling like you, what you are doing is aligned with your purpose. And, yes. and sometimes when money starts infiltrating, mm -hmm. you believe your purpose is, mm -hmm. but it's not actually it. Right. That's when you start to feel off and yet you don't know why. Yes. Yes. And that's what I find when someone comes in to negotiate a contract, I have to steer it away from money. What things in your life have been satisfying? What do you want your life to be like? And no one says, I want to be rich. They might say, I want to live here. In Some this. people have said that. And well, they I know. Think they, but you know what? They don't really know. It becomes, it becomes quick that that person realizes, I'm not the person to represent them. Yeah. Because they'll say, I'm worth X. My husband told me I should get X. And I'm not going to go to the other side and say, well, just because. You know, add another decimal point. That's my credibility. But also, going back to a person, you don't want to say, you're not worth that. But sometimes I want to say, your skills and energy and talent are worth having being respected by mm -hmm. the party you're working for. And what does respect mean to you? What are the tools you need to do your job in the best way? That's why when I can bring a client around to recognizing those things, that's how I get what I want in a negotiation. Because I go to the other side and I'll say, these are the tools this person needs to do his job. 
and you really want to give me these things because we're doing the same job and we want the same success. Mm. That's why this is something that's a good thing to put in our agreement. It's helping people recognize what satisfaction is, including the counterpart on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that that idea of worth, mm -hmm. especially in a monetary value, yes. is always such an interesting point of negotiation mm -hmm. because especially when you're dealing with creatives versus operators and technical right. and business people, mm -hmm. I think they come in with a sense of, well, given that there's a very tangible, like I'm creating this product yes. and this is a market rate of a developer right. and like, right. you know, finance people. And then you bring someone along who's this like visionary creative mm -hmm. who's like mm -hmm. built the brand and very easily taken advantage of in terms of oh, saying, yes. well, this is, this is just, there's no worth here. Um, it's just a name. It's just a brand. And to be able to value that mm -hmm. is something that I think is difficult for creatives in the face of very logical yes. um, negotiations. Well, the most important thing is getting away from the idea that money is what it's about. Mm -hmm. They'll know what other designers make. or But I think the, the real, the crux of it is that Ah, it is thinking too much of oneself and not enough at the same time. Yeah. But also recognizing that in large, you know, an international brand, a uh, creative-driven industry, the value is the brand, yep. and the hardest thing is the brand is the talent behind it, which is that person. And the really difficult thing is when that brand and person, it's the company, it's their own name. Yeah. So getting up every day an individual that has that sort of intangible value, they've got to live and be the persona that lives up to all of that. And there's an enormous amount of self-doubt. What they put out there, this is my idea of what viscerally I think is really important. Well, nobody likes it. It's not important. You're not any good. You're not living up to what you're supposed to be. You're a failure. So it isn't necessarily even about money for those people. It's, it's my heart and soul that's out there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like solving a math problem. Yeah. And for that, the stakes of failure, when someone founds a business and their name is on the label, mm -hmm. it becomes their, not just their baby, it's how they identify themselves in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's really fragile. Yeah. And someone might pretend it's about money, but really it's about, it's about self-worth as, and a lot of that is how they're perceived by the company that may own them. Mm -hmm. A yeah. really difficult, it's a difficult road. Yeah. And that sort of that sort of feeling is definitely something that I've gone through myself yep. in terms of learning about my own worth, right? And yes. how that translates into a dollar amount and you know, how does that align with the purpose and the image and yes. all of those things. And, and so, you've done it amazingly. You're living your purpose. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's just <laughs> getting to know even in a short time I feel like I know you very well. And what an example. What a spectacular example, and I'm inspired by it. Truly, I'm inspired by your message and purpose, and I'm realizing it really is mine. Which is why I'm so damn happy to be here with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great thing. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we share that passion for um, especially empowering disenfranchised groups, mm -hmm. women, minorities. Yes. Um, tell me about what you're working on specifically now in that space. Um, well, in fact, I'm just starting a company which I've negotiated on behalf of founder owners my whole life and people who are in creative-driven industries, they face additional hurdles. But honestly, it's, 
it's become so clear, you know, as we all know, it's not even shocking, that women face a much di- more difficult path when they're founding and growing their businesses. They are, uh, and again, I'm, I'm focusing on a certain a type of business. Uh, it's not a startup. It's not brand new. It's women who have gotten to a point in their business. It's profitable. It's turning over you know, a million in profit. They're ready to go. But even at that stage, they have a much more difficult time getting to the next level to really hit that rung of, of leadership of women in business. Mm-hmm. And they're stuck there, I think, as I said, because the, the people who choose to do uh, make the fundraise, the funding decisions undervalue their leadership ability. Mm-hmm. And whether it's women, it can be a lot of people, but that's really my focus. And also, they, they are, women are not natural at selling themselves. Uh, saying, I'm the best, I'm confident, I know these things, which is how a lot of men attract financiers, and the financiers say, yep, you've got the EBITDA, you've got the metrics. Women don't have that because they don't think that way, and their, their companies are so much more valuable than they're able to project. And so, truly, my uh, what I'm finding is my purpose right now is to work with those businesses. My partner comes from the investment finance world for years and years. He was one of the founders of the Carlisle Group and has a very tight network of the right kind of investors, taking his ready access and uh, sort of the the language of what those companies, are, those investors are looking for. And for me, it's not just getting them financing, it's getting them financing on the right terms that meet their values, which is, does my does my team report to me is this the vision that means something? And is my backer or financier, are they really on the same page? And the other part, which to me is absolutely critical, is uh, my company has alongside us a, um, I don't think of it, quite think of it as a coven. I think of it as sort of a, um, uh, it's a, an arsenal of successful women. Mm-hmm. Women who are successful entrepreneurs who've made it in whatever that means, to be encouraging, to say, I've been there, this, I'm here to help you with my knowledge, Uh, I'm here to tell you, yeah, you can make it, and also stay who you are, you don't have to become something else to be a success, Mm -hmm. and honestly, we make it when we've got strong women around us. I look at clients like Tori Birch, like Carolina Herrera, uh, like Kate Spade, all of whom had really, really strong women around them building their companies. And that's what I want to provide to women at this stage in their business. Mm-hmm. It's access to those financiers. It's someone who, who will say, what does this really mean to you? What does this transition? What are your values? And make sure those things are part of the transaction. And also realizing we can't have everything. You can't have you know the apartment on a high floor with a big window in the right neighborhood at the right price. Mm-hmm. There are trade-offs, but that woman is going to know exactly what things she can expect and not after a transaction. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's those two things, plus, honestly, the arsenal of women who want to give back, who have that same spirit of making things the way they should be. And I'm so excited about this. I've never felt more purposeful mm. getting up in the morning saying, I can't wait to get this finalized and sewn up and find those people and make those arrangements, deals, those uh, those financing opportunities where those people are going to become, you know, the new leaders in business doing things the way they do them. 
a long-winded answer of yeah. that's what I'm doing right now, and <laughs> I'm amazing. so happy to be working on a team for a change. Yeah, with other that's people being able to go further. So yes, that's the long-winded <laughs> version of what I'm doing. On the topic of purpose, mm-hmm. because it's a very weighty one, mm-hmm. something that I've talked about recently with a few friends, and I find that people actually get quite easily depressed mm-hmm. when they can't figure out what their purpose is because. Mm-hmm. They're looking sideways and they're mm-hmm. saying, wow, like these entrepreneurs, they know what they're doing. They yes. have their purpose. How do right. they get up in the morning? Um, what do you think about this idea of finding your purpose? Could not be a more difficult thing. Couldn't be more difficult, especially in the context of, I mean, I live in Tribeca. My husband and I moved to Tribeca 25 years ago where everybody was kind of a starving artist or wanted to live in a big, weird cement box and it's now become the wealthiest zip code in Manhattan. And I'm looking around at all of this and remembering that I'm not lesser because they all make so much money. In fact, there, a lot of them just aren't that interesting because so many of us, I think, uh, at each juncture in the road, which one, where will I make the most money? And that tends to be in banking and finance. And for some people, that's their purpose. They do it wonderfully. And other people feel like that's what I should do. And they don't find the purpose in loving literature, in sharing that with other people, whatever it might be. We're easily diverted by the things that seem to matter. I think if you ask most people what's their purpose, they would say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything in the world that all of us can do is to figure out the way to find it and help other people find it. That's, mm-hmm. that's happiness. It's achieving something that is worth achieving to you and not to anybody else. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. It's looking sideways at what everybody else is. Am I enough compared to them? Everybody walking down the street looks like they're doing pretty well. <laughs> Especially in New York. <laughs> Truly, everybody's just having a party. And yeah. we, we have no idea the struggles that every single person has, yeah. whether it is financially like really paying the bills, whether it's you know, supporting uh, aging parents, whether it's just depression. None of us want to say, I need help, and it's just, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Everybody looks like they've got it going on. Yeah, and that's something that I like to remember when walking down the street mm-hmm. is, um, what is what is this person suffering from? You mm-hmm. know, like, every single person, there's some sort of yes. suffering going on inside, at home, at work, and you never know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that allows you to be a little bit more empathetic and mm-hmm. just you know, realizing that we're all human in terms mm-hmm. of trying to figure out what it is that we need to do. Mm-hmm. I guess when I see that, the really, the really high bar is when I feel someone has really wronged me to say, rather than I want to get revenge or I want to make them say they're sorry, I try really hard to think to myself, what's going on with them that makes them behave that way? Mm. To try to have empathy, try to be understanding, one, that it's not all about me, Maybe I did really screw up, but first also looking to what's going on with them and how can I treat them in a way that will reinforce their confidence and let them know it's okay that you're this way. I want to be understanding. I, I'm so grateful that my friends take me as I am. All the flaws and weaknesses and ways that I might let them down, I'm just so grateful and I try to think of that with my friends also. We've all got our stuff. Thanks for accepting mine. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that. I'm sure, though, that you've been through those relationships or friendships mm-hmm. where 
that wasn't always the case. Mm -hmm. And I, I have been through that myself. And I think that also is a process of learning who's in your tribe and who's not. Yes. And pruning if necessary. People that are good for us. Yeah. Which includes people who accept us for our failures. Yeah. And people who ask for help in a way that is genuine and appreciative. We all need to be needed, but that's that's the tribe where you can say, yep, this is how I'm really feeling terrible. Or I've really screwed up in this and have the people behind us say, you're okay. Oh, well, move on. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for this incredible interview and for being there for me when I needed you. Not a bit. <laughs> You've got to be kidding and vice versa. Um, so the way I end every episode mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. just with the one thing. Yes. The belief that all it takes is one thing, one voice to mm-hmm. change the world. Absolutely. So just answer things that comes off top of your head. Okay. Um, and ready? Yep. Okay. What is one question that you wish people would ask each other more? How are you today? Rather than how are you? Like I want to know everything. Genuinely, how are you today? Hmm. How are you today? You know, I'm pretty great. I'm thinking, (laughs) what am I going to say to all these people that might be, you know, I'd like dressed up for a podcast, which I thought was funny as hell. (laughs) So I'm actually pretty good because I so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I did too. Thank you. What is one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend for anyone to read? Ah, um, what's it called? Um, Secrets of the Flesh. Hmm. It's a biography of Colette. Absolutely spectacular. And to be honest, it, it is part of my, I've had this one person book club for years. <laughs> and it's reading about women authors in a certain period of history and still that were seen as transgressive. They broke the mold. They were doing things they weren't supposed to do like Colette, like Edna St. Vincent Millay. Um, um, I have a bunch of other ones, but it was so motivating to me that we can really be ourselves. And maybe nobody likes it. Think that you're just living outside your time. Mm. So that, I love all of her struggles and her Sylvia Plath. It's the, you know, don't put your head in the oven. Believe in yourself. Great. And if there was one thing that you would want people to remember about you, what would it be? that I help them see the great qualities in themselves that they didn't see. They didn't understand, they didn't recognize the power and qualities. If there's, I don't, I don't claim any brilliance on my own behalf, wherever it comes from, I can see things in people they don't see. That's why my tattoo is Mercury, the winged messenger. I want to somehow bring to people something that is genuinely good and helps them see their potential. What is one weakness you feel like you still have? I don't ask for help. Mm. I'm learning. I'm learning every day, but I don't say, how do I do this? How do I be straight ahead and say, this is what I'd like? Mm. Or this is what, how you can help me. Would you please do this? Great. Um, and what's one thing that you would bring with you on a desert island? My awesome husband, <laughs> my best friend and awesome husband for more than 25 years. Amazing. Uh, last thing, yep. we want to make this podcast as actionable as possible yes. for our listeners. Mm-hmm. What is one micro action, one challenge that you want to issue to our listeners that they could do today? To be honest, I love random acts of kindness. Just something that you see that you could take a minute to do or not and that to me, one little thing every day, someone who's having a really hard time on the street to say, here, 
Good luck, brother. I'm with you. To me, it is calling people brother, which I do all the time. Or sister. Yes. <laughs> but to me, it's the yeah. nicest thing. Yeah. One way or another, it's a it's a connection with someone, no reason, yeah. and you could just walk by. And man, that is a way to be happy. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really Not enjoyed a bit. this conversation. Not a bit. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.